This is the Forbes interview, season two. I'm your host, Stephen Bertoni. This show is for anyone with an entrepreneurial passion, looking for inspiration from established and up and coming business pioneers. In early February 2017, shortly after President Trump was inaugurated, we had billionaire Tom Steyer on the show with us. Back then, he wouldn't answer me directly whether or not he'd run for president. But today, it's clear, as he announced his bid for the 2020 presidential election last week. In a minute, you'll hear our chat. It gives a lot of in-depth insight into who Steyer is, his controversial opinions about the economy and climate change, and the ideas that will fuel his campaign for president. But first, this podcast is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp's all-in-one marketing platform allows you to manage more of your marketing activities from one place so you can market smarter and grow faster. Today we have Tom Steyer, who is just your typical self-made billionaire, hedge fund investor, activist, environmentalist, and perhaps future politician. We'll have to talk about that later. Uh, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a, I guess, a rare hedge fund guy who is going all out for the Democrats. You're a big Democratic donor. And obviously, the Trump election must have been just earth shattering. What is going on? What is on your mind? Well, I see this election as ushering in an administration that is leading an all-out attack on American interests, on the Ameri- on the civil liberties of Americans, and on the American people generally. And I feel that we want to be part of the group of people who is organizing to stand up against that, to try and protect um, our basic rights, and also to try and put forward a much more positive, more you know, hopeful, optimistic view of what we can do together instead of this terrible attempt to divide us and prove that the world is terrible and only, only a true authoritarian can save us from ourselves. When did you get so involved in politics? You're not quiet. You're leading with your voice. You're leading with your, your wallet. What has motivated you to get involved? And when did you start? Well, the first time I really got involved in politics was somewhere around 2002, when I realized that George W. Bush was gonna turn out to be a disastrous president for the United States. When he was originally elected, I wasn't for him, but I thought that he had a good record in Texas and was a quote unquote compassionate conservative and that he would be a president who I might not agree with, but who would do a good job the way his father did, Mm -hmm. you know, given his lights. And I realized somewhere around 2002 that actually he was gonna be an incredibly negative force for the American people and for our country. And so I worked really hard for John Kerry as an alternative to try and save us from what I thought was a, an administration that was floundering and ultimately led to you know, a huge lack of success. For you, what was the red flags with, with Bush? I think he had absolutely no sense of how an economy works. And I think he had absolutely no sense of the right way to act internationally. And we have two failed wars and a gigantic recession to prove that, you know, my anticipation unfortunately turned out to be correct. Going into this crazy election, what was, did you anticipate Trump? Did you fear Trump getting started? You know, I believed that the pollsters knew what they were talking about. And so I just listened to all the different polls and thought, okay, that it's going to come out somewhere close to where they're saying, which is that Hillary Clinton is going to get elected. And when I, on election night, when I saw saw the returns coming in, I realized, okay, 
all of the data was wrong. We, you know, they, they'd previously done a very good job. And I realized, wow, my expectations are inaccurate. The world has changed in a way that I didn't anticipate. And so let's get on with it and figure out what to do about it. You were a big backer of Hillary Clinton. Was it an anti-Trump move or did you really believe in Hillary as a, as a candidate, as a politician, as a president? Actually, what we did in 2016 is a little different from the way you characterized it. Okay. What we did was we worked in California and outside California to try and promote the broadest democracy based on issues. So that, for instance, we were on 370 college campuses talking to the kids on issues, but not endorsing anybody until after the um, conventions. The fact was we wanted to engage them on climate. We want to engage people on economic justice. Um, we knocked on over 11 million doors with partners. We registered over a million people. Our goal was to say, let's get people engaged in the process. Let's let Americans talk to each other and realize what's important because we believe the broadest democracy, the most people engaged in participating will get us the best results. And the place where we did that the most was in California. Mm -hmm. And in California, we had an amazing November 8th. You backed the issues, but have you backed people before? Oh, sure. And, and ultimately, when it came down to Trump versus Clinton, we were all in on Clinton. No question about it. But it sounds like you weren't a giant fan of Hillary. That's not true. The, the, what we were saying is this. We were trying to represent the issues, mm. and we were trying to go to, the America, to American citizens and say, here are issues. All along, we were trying to let people know where they stood. We're straight-up progressives. You know, we believe that America is going to be better. We believe that we can have a cleaner, more prosperous future. We believe that we're one people, not dividing people by ethnicity, race, or gender, or sexual orientation. So, you know, we have a very, very different view of why we can have a better future than this administration does. And that's something that we have always stood up for it. And for the people who stand up for it along with us, we are unequivocal in our support for them, as we were of Mrs. Clinton when it came to the general. How would you grade Obama? How, how did you feel his administration did? I thought Barack was a great president. I thought that he came in under extremely difficult circumstances. He never got an iota of cooperation from Republicans. I think he tried, he bent over backwards for five years, thinking that if he were calm and resolute and polite that he would ultimately get compromised. I think ultimately he realized he didn't, but I think that I agree with him overwhelmingly on his stances, and I thought that he took the high road consistently and gave us an image of what an American leader is supposed to behave like, and I thought that, he's, that the further he is from holding the office, the more Americans are going to realize how exceptional he really was. You are a, you know, an investor, a former hedge fund you know, titan, I'd say. What, how would you grade, besides Obama's, just his character, but personality, how do you grade his, his, his economic policies? Because they tended to go against what a lot of, most people in your field tend to be libertarians, less government is better. How do you, how do you feel about the economy and what he did with it? You know, I love libertarians because I th say they have to be really, really smart to be able to convince other people that their entire selfishness is actually for other people's benefit. I thought that if you look at the recession of 2008 and compare the United States to every other country in the world, you will see we did the best. The best. 
There is no country that handled the recession as well as our government did. The fact of the matter is when people compare the growth rates from 2008 on to the recovery from other recessions post-World War II, they're, they're comparing apples and oranges. We had a destruction of our balance sheet in the United States. The normal post-World War II recession is you know, an income recession where basically the Fed raises rates to, because they feel the economy is overheating, makes it hard for people to borrow money. That means they can't buy houses, they can't buy cars, the economy slows down, rates go down, inflation goes down, and then they ease the money supply. This was entirely different. This was an attack on the entire banking system. I mean, let's go back to 2008. Yeah, banking, auto, the whole real estate market. There wasn't it. This was a balance sheet recession. So when you think about that, normally it takes a generation to come out from that. 1929, look, it took us World War II to get out of the Depression. The fact of the matter was, I think the Fed did a fantastic job. I think that the government overall did a very good job. And really, go to Europe and see how they did. Look at their unemployment rates. Look at how, where they are now. Go all around the world and see what the result was. We, I thought that the economic team handled it masterfully and really, I think the Obama team deserves a ton of credit for what they did. And I think that, you know, it takes a while for people to be able to really draw conclusions about history. Mm-hmm. And I think that the in this case, the further we get from 2009, 2010, and look and see what happened, people are going to go like, was it perfect? Absolutely, it was not perfect. You know, could the could some of it been done better? Absolutely, it could have been done better. But overall, did they do a terrific job? I actually think they did. You know, as a an investor, and I guess a you know someone very good in the economy, you want America to thrive. You want the economy booming. Um, you're also a clean energy guy, and a lot of the economy in the last couple of years, or last you know decade, has been a huge boom in American oil, gas, fracking, that kind of thing. How do you balance both of those? Are you pro-fracking, you pro-energy. Obviously, you're a huge green energy guy, but that has made a giant, you know, it's really helped the economy. The energy boom has helped us get out of the recession. If you look, so let's divide up energy a little bit into usage. Yeah. If you look at the amount of capacity in electricity that's been added, it's been overwhelmingly renewables, not exclusively, but you know, there's been some replacement of coal by natural gas, mm-hmm. but there's been an, the majority of the new uh, generation has been renewables. The fact of the matter is, if you go and look, renewables are a bet on American business. They're a bet on American ingenuity, new businesses, the ability to drive down costs. That's true in technology businesses across the board. Technology businesses like renewable energy the kinds of clean energy that are there are going to wipe the floor with fossil fuels. What are your favorites? You mean which do I think is going to win? Yeah. Well, the good news about the American economy is you don't have to choose them. The economy works on its own if you'll just let it be. I mean, when we see people trying to figure out ways to subsidize coal so that it can compete with renewables, that seems to be contrary to every rule. The idea that American business can't solve problems by doing research, by bringing in new technologies, by driving down costs, by figuring out better ways to bring it to market, that's completely contrary to everything that this country is about. Why are we trying to protect old industries from American entrepreneurship? 
I'm really not sure. <laughs> and when you say renew- just for our listeners, when you say renewables, which what specifically do you look? The overwhelming renew- numbers are wind and solar. But let me say this too: we have spent a ton of time, mostly through a project called the Risky Business Project. With it's a bipartisan project. It's got Hank Paulson, Mayor Bloomberg, and me as the people who originated mm-hmm. it, and then a bunch of people of both parties or no party business people supporting it. And the idea was to compare what would happen if we did clean energy versus business as usual. Clean energy creates net millions more jobs, drives up wages, drives down costs, and drives up the growth of the United States of America. So when someone says, oh, we, if we don't invest in this fossil fuel project, then we won't create these jobs, right, we'll invest in another project that is smarter and creates more jobs and is better for the United States. It is imp- When we look at fossil fuels, you have to understand, we're not producing all those assets. Really, new technologies are going to wipe the floor with fossil fuels, and the fossil fuel companies are going to fight like crazy because they're the incumbents mm-hmm. to get political protection from elected officials, and they're going to pay and have paid a ton of money to get political protection. That's where we are now. What is the Tom Steyer um, clean energy blueprint? Like if you were the energy czar, what, what do we need to do to get to a spot where alternatives really, uh, renewables really are? If you up? ask people who are theoreticians of either party, so my friends who are Republicans, my friends who are Democrats, if you take them away from politics and just ask policy, they would say, find out what the cost to society is of the different kinds of pollution associated with fossil fuels, charge them, and let the market work, period. Get out of the way and just give everybody a level playing field. If that happens... How does that work? I'm just curious when you say, what do you mean by charge them? You, you put a tax, you know, you put a fee based on pollution. You know, it's, you don't get a right to pollute. This is originally was done with um, the hole in the ozone layer, where under the, originally the Reagan administration, they said we could only allow this much pollution. You get to bid, everybody gets to pay to pollute if they want to, and you buy the right to mm-hmm. pollute, and that's a fee. The credit, kind of the, the credit trading yes. system. Yeah. And American business came up with a solution so that you could, replace that technology with a better, cheaper technology in like six months. All they said was, make them pay. And I think DuPont came up with something better. The truth of the matter is, Americans are smart. They're good researchers. They're great at commercializing new ideas and driving down costs. And that's all we're really talking about. The the funny thing about this whole thing is, we have one industry, the fossil fuel industry, trying to retain its position in American society, and virtually every other industry is like, why? They've moved on. You know, the, the people who are in favor of pushing for clean energy includes Walmart, Cargill, you know, GE. There are tons of the huge American companies all across the country who know this conversation is over. But politically, it's not over because those fossil fuel companies have consistent defenders from elected officials. So obviously the, the current administration does not see eye to eye with, with what you're pushing here. What are you doing tomorrow? What is the, the game plan for you uh, and your foundation and just your, 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 your peers for the next four years? What's the battle Look, plan? From our standpoint, we'll keep doing what we've been doing, which is basically to say we believe in the American people. We believe that they're smart. We believe that they 
need information and when they have it and are engaged, they make better decisions than anyone else. So we'll keep being engaged on the ground in terms of trying to be involved in grassroots, community-oriented politics across the country, and we'll try to make sure that the information is readily available and gets to people. Because what we're seeing is that when this administration, when their allies try to do things that are truly outrageous, the American people has the ability to say no. So that, you know, when Trump says he's going to put a 20% tariff on Mexican goods in order to pay for a wall. <laughs> Said it. Yep. You know, that's the kind of thing that any economist who graduated from third grade would say, okay, that's Mr. Smoot, Mr. Holly, that's not a good idea. But he said it, and the American people basically said there was an immediate response of that is one of the worst ideas of all time. You've been talking about it, but if you really think you're going to do that, that is insane. And suddenly it became a proposal amongst many proposals. When the congressional Republicans started by saying our number one move is to get rid of ethics oversight, the American people said, no. No, that is wholly unacceptable. So we view our role as trying to be part of this direct democracy that can be the people who say, no, there's a better way of thinking about America. There's a way that will produce higher wages and more jobs, and we can have cleaner air and a much safer society. And that's what we are going to try and be part of that movement as hard as we can. You have such great faith in the American people, and I assume that means you have faith in the American economy. And as a you know, top investor, what, do you, what is your prediction for the economy? You're not even prediction. What do you like right now? If you're, putting, if you're making big bets, what are you excited about right now in America, in business? Well, first of all, let me say this. I spend all of my time thinking about a better vision for America beyond business, beyond investing into you know, a, a much broader view than just looking about where to put money and which industry mm -hmm. is going to drive growth. I can say this, in the energy area, there is, there is going to have to be trillions of dollars invested in thinking about a, a better way to run our society. And that is money that's going to return, have a good return. So when I think about investment, really, I think people tend to look way too much at the past history, thinking it will change, and don't ask themselves, I mean, you think about this society, this society is changing so fast. I mean, we're sitting here. If you think about the role of media and the ability to contact people and how people contact people, how Forbes has changed over the last one, two, five, ten years. It changes every six months. It's wild. It's the and whole it, environment. And the pace is not going to slow. It's going to quicken. So the fact of the matter is one of the you know, when you think about going forward, what are the things that are not going to change? You know, what is there about this society? I, I'll, I, you ask me about investment. Here's what I would say about mm -hmm. investment. The competitor in every industry that is the most IT enabled, that has the best software, is going to win in every industry. So just as obvious examples that, you know, are hindsight. Taxi cabs, the deal is you got to get a medallion, right? No, actually, Uber, yep. Lyft, it was about IT. But hotels, I mean, hotels are about where you are and the kind of service. Actually, Airbnb would argue, maybe not. Farming, 
the most IT-enabled farmers are going to win. Everyone always thought it was about who has the best land, you know, where is the water, all that stuff. The fact of the matter, farming is going to be driven by IT. Every industry in the world is going to be driven by IT, and the person in the company that is competing with that edge is going to be the fastest, it's going to make the decisions the best, and it's going to win. Yeah, the trouble is the best IT is always the third best IT in, in, a, in a year. It's it just it's evolved so much, and you look at just the, the a decade ago, look at the, the big winners and look who's, who's in charge now. It's, it's fascinating. But actually, if you look at it, you know, I mean, the rule on technology always is you can't skip a generation. So it is true. I mean, when people stop innovating, they're going to fall off a cliff. But for, for the people who are really good, they're going to keep innovating. And so they're going to, in fact, make it more difficult for people to compete with them. Before you threw yourself big into the environment and social causes, when you're running your business, what was kind of your secret sauce? Like when you're making investing, what helped you be so successful and so profitable? I think that business is different from investing. And so if you ask me about business, I would say our rule was long, honest relationships with our partners, both the people we worked with and for the people who were our lawyers, our accountants, our brokers, who we did business with. Our idea was long, positive relationships beat short, competitive ones, mm-hmm. but, which, I, which I think is a big point of life. It does, but you're also in probably the most aggressive cutthroat industry in hedge funds where at the end of the day, it was all about the returns. And how did you guys get returns and get that money coming in and get all the, all the customers? What was, in terms of not running the business, but getting great returns and making good bets. When we thought about investing, our rule was it's really important not to be greedy. So we were always trying to be honest and not take huge risks and to understand the risks we were taking. So the funny thing was, from our standpoint, the rule of investing that we believed the most was the first rule of investing, don't lose money. (laughs) The second rule of investing, don't forget the first rule. So we actually had a very straightforward. That's easier easier said than done. No one wants to lose money in investing. But the question is, how do you really think about it? Because actually, there are a lot of people who would say, I don't want to lose money, but I'm going to do a mathematical formula, which will show if I make 10 investments and one of them is a 10 for one and one is a, you know, they'll say, I know that three or four of them are going to be zeros, but that's okay. And that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. What we said was, no, what we're trying to do is compound at a good rate and not be greedy, but just do it consistently. Because if you do the math, but if you, if you think about it in any long-term way, the people who do well are the people who compound over and over again. You know, the, the classic example is that if the Indians had taken Peter Stuyvesant's $28 in whatever it was, 1623, and invested at 6%, they could buy Manhattan Island and every <laughs> building on it today. It's a Warren Buffett calls it the, uh, the the snowball effect. Yes, and and that really and that's really what he's done. Yeah, he say, just do it every year, just compound every year. Don't try don't try and get rich quick. Try to get a decent return and keep doing. Before you made a, a bet or made an investment, what was take me through your thought process? What sort of things would you look for? What was the process before you kind of pushed the chips in? Look, we always were sitting there trying to figure out to be fair about where we were at a given point in time and to try and think forward to another point in time to what would have changed over that period and try and think about how much of that can we anticipate and what can't we anticipate. 
so that you understand what the risks are that you're willingly taking where you feel like the odds are in your favor and what the risks are that you don't understand and can the company survive it. So for, to a very large extent, you know, it is a question about thinking about the future. The, investing's all about the future. It's all it is, yeah. And so you're spending all your time trying to predict how a group of people are going to work. And, you know, obviously, I think leadership is unbelievably important, much underestimated in my mind. You know, and in a small, you know, in a small company, it's everything. Yep. It turns out in the United States of America, it's also critically important, as I think we're finding out. Give me a good, I mean, leadership is such a kind of squishy word. Give me a good, what was a good leader in your mind? How did you know if when you walked in and met a CEO that you wanted to um, back? Well, I think one of the things that is the characteristic of a leader it has to do with culture. Because how you treat people and what your truest values are are the things that drive decision-making over a long period of time. So strategies can change, but culture is really who you are. So if you have a leader who's dishonest, who doesn't, who believes, doesn't believe in truth, who doesn't treat people with respect, I mean, that's a very tenuous, shaky situation. And you're going to get all kinds of dysfunction coming out of that. And you're going to get, in my opinion, terrible results. Which companies, either now or looking back, had some of those best cultures specifically? Which companies had the right environment, the right motivation? Well, I think, you know, if you really want to look at someone who is uh, the icon of American business, I mean, it is Warren Buffett. You know, I think that when you think about him as an investor, but also as a thinker, you know, I always say to people, Warren Buffett, in 100 years, nobody will remember that Warren Buffett was so rich and it will be entirely unimportant, but people will still be reading what he had to say. And so I think that, you know, if there's someone who you, to be admired in American business, it's really for his writings. You know, when people ask me, I would like, you know, I'd love to be an investor. Mm -hmm. Who should I read? What are the books? I say, go get all of the Buffett letters yeah. and read them because he has redefined the way to think about investing for the world for much more than this generation. I mean, he is our Benjamin Franklin. I mean, people don't realize it, but you know, Benjamin Franklin, a penny saved is a penny earned. Yeah. Warren Buffett, he has said so many things that have changed the way people think. And they're all clever, they're all entertaining. That he's a, he is a brilliant writer, but he's a much more brilliant thinker. And he, I don't think people would have paid yeah. so much attention to his thinking, but the fact of the matter is he's someone who has done a great job in my mind of trying to be open, transparent, and, you know, really forward thinking in the best way. What drew you to in the investing business in the first place back in the day? Well, I think, you know, I was an econ poli sci major mm -hmm. in college. And I'm really... Me too. Were you? Yeah. I'm really fascinated with systems and how they work. And so... You know, I also love doing puzzles, as people in my office will tell you. I do puzzles every day. It's really fun. You're like a jigsaw puzzle guy? I'm actually not. I'm, you know, all, numbers puzzles. Okay, yeah. You know. Sudoku? Believe it or not, I yeah. still do Sudoku. Yeah. I will. I'll plead guilty <laughs> on that. It's just fun. It's yeah. relaxing for me. But if you, but investing to a large extent is trying to look forward in infinite number of variables, what's going to happen and trying to figure out the future. And so to me, that's you know, inherently interesting. And then you get the positive result of actually compounding 
and doing well. So it's, you know, it's something that is for me, it's, it's relaxing and exciting at the same time. And it's, you know, a little world where you get a chance to think really hard about a specific problem. The issue with it is it's very, you know, you're looking at a specific problem and to a large extent, you're thinking about holding the rest of the world constant. Mm -hmm. What happened to me was I realized, wow, I've been super lucky. I love doing this. I've had a great career, but there are things in our society that I find, you know, there are opportunities that we're missing that are gigantic. I mean, as much as I disagree with what the Trump administration is doing, I disagree equally strongly with what they're not doing. Mm -hmm. We have great opportunities that they're passing on. And I felt like, and when I started in 2002, I felt like as an American citizen, I don't want my grandchildren to say, when we were completely screwing it up, grandpa, what were you doing? And I was going to say, well, I was being, you know, I was running my business. Yeah. I'm an, you know, I'm an American too. I take it really, I take that responsibility really seriously. And I felt like I've been so lucky, then I owe it to the people I know and the people I don't know to give some of that luck back and get involved in a big way because I thought, wow, we can do so much better than this and we have to. You grew up in New York, the heart of, of finance, and now you're in San Francisco, which is the global center of all technology. If you were starting a career again, do you think you'd be an investor again? Or is there another thing you'd think you'd draw to these days if you're just stepping out into the world? I don't know, but I will say this. So I have four children mm -hmm. between the ages of 23 and 28. So they're just in the middle of their careers, you know, getting, just starting getting out, going. Yeah. My youngest son is a senior in college. Mm -hmm. I think for everybody, the, what I said about companies is going to be true for individuals too, which is it's going to be necessary for people to speak the language of computers. And it's not going to be that you're a computer scientist. It's just going to be necessary in whatever you're interested in to have that facility. And I think that our schools are going to have to take that. I mean, I think the kids are learning it on their own to a very large extent and are mm -hmm. shockingly good at it. But I think that it's going to be really necessary. And then the question would be, how much can I follow just what I think is fun? You know, the thing that is is that I would just choose to do for the sheer pleasure of it. And how much do I feel like, wow, this is such a dangerous time in America. This is such a, you know, this is such a changing time in America that I feel compelled at this point to go all in politically the way I have as a an older person. I don't know where I would come out on that. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that having at my point of life, I feel as if I feel completely driven to try and be part of a good solution for our country. I mean, obviously you feel very strongly against the current administration. Is there anything that they're doing or any ideas that they have that you actually support? No. I, honestly, I, I feel there's something else going on here, which is, you know, when you think about business and you think about relations with people in business, there's a concept of a, an respectable, honest counterparty. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do, if you come to me and say, you know, let's start a business, let's build a building, let's do a project together, there has to be a sense that you are someone who is, who I can work with. And honestly, this administration is doing things that make it impossible to think that you can work with them. They're not telling the truth. They're intentionally not telling the truth. They're very aggressive. They're going after the rights of Americans. They're going after Americans themselves. 
They are doing things that I consider divisive and, you know, attacking the dignity of mm-hmm. Americans. And I don't think any of those are close to okay, close to excusable. There's been so much action. Like these last two weeks have been exhausting. Everyone's kind of unsettled. Everyone, there's just, you don't know where to look. There's so much controversy happening. How do you think this all ends? I would say this ends with the American people's voice being heard. And I think that when I said from the beginning, what we believe in is the broadest democracy, the most engagement, the most participation by the most Americans. That's what we believe in. Because we believe when that happens, then the vision that we have, which is of a much more inclusive, welcoming, optimistic society, and one which is much fairer so that the vast disparities of wealth and income are much less, will win. Because I truly believe that is the spirit of America and what the vast majority of Americans want. And I think it's a question of getting the participation and the engagement and letting their voices be heard because their voice will be very loud and I think it will be very loud against some of the actions that are being taken right now against them. Do you see yourself with maybe a future in politics down the road? I've heard your name bounced around as maybe a California governor candidate down the line. The thing that we're doing now in terms of trying to build grassroots organization which we had, I mean, in, in 2016, we were on 370 college campuses. We knocked on 11 million doors with partners. We registered over a million Americans. We supported probably 15 to 20 different propositions on the ballot. Mm-hmm. We are going to try to both continue and expand on those operations and also try and make sure that the you know, the ability to communicate between and amongst Americans. I mean, we're asking Americans right now for what they would like to see as actions is expanded and made really strong. Anything that I do personally would have to be something that would make that effort stronger and more effective because I think that's where our focus is. And so, But if you found some ideas that you really stood behind, because I know we'll get to that crowdsourcing that's very interesting in a minute, would you step up and maybe join, join the government if you were run for government, uh, run for some policy? Well, what I said in the past, someone asked me would I run mm-hmm. for an office if I thought that that would help, you know, and some of the, you know, at this point they were asking me about uh, global warming. Yeah. And I said, look, I, I try and climb one 14,000 foot mountain a year. And... I'm, that is actually fairly hard, and depending on how hard the mountain is, it can be very hard. Yeah. And I climbed one, which I thought was, for some people might not be so hard, but for me it was very hard. And we went down about 1,000 feet. Which one was it? I don't even, I, last year I climbed Palamonium. I don't remember, that. this was okay. probably three years ago. We went down 1,000 feet, very jagged, technical. I was exhausted, and the guy said, if I gave you a million bucks, would you climb that again? I said, not a chance. <laughs> he said, if it would cure, if it would solve the global warming crisis, would you do it? I said, I'd do it in bare feet. I mean, I will do, I'm willing to go very far on these issues because I feel as if this is a threat that has never existed in our society while I've been alive. And you mentioned global warming, obviously, is a huge passion of yours. And it was a big, it was a, you know, that was the focus of your foundation. Since then, you've expanded it, and you've actually opened it to a very Silicon Valley model that you want to crowdsource 
causes and crowdsource actions. How has that been so far? What, have, what are you seeing from that model? Well, let me say this. I mean, what we said originally about energy and climate was that there was no way to address that without also addressing inequity in our society. So our mission statement was always included the words to promote prosperity for every American mm -hmm. because the energy is at such a central part of our economy that, the, that if we address that without doing it in an equitable way, it won't work and it shouldn't work. That the fairness part of this, the equity part of this is something that's absolutely critical. I think what we've seen is we're at a time where the model of democracy has really changed. At, we're much more in direct democracy than anyone seems to be aware, but it's very startling to see how fast people can be informed and how fast they can come back. And in that model, you're, you need organization, but you also want to tap into the brains of everybody because mm -hmm. everybody together is much smarter than anybody. Yeah. And so what we were saying in trying to crowdsource ideas is to say, look, we know you guys are thinking about this too. We know that together you're smarter than anybody. Send us your ideas. We'll try and make them happen to the extent they fit in with what we believe to. How's the response been so far? We're getting them in, but you know what we said was, we'll go through every single one, we'll respond to every single one, and we'll support the ones that really work. And I have a quick environmental question for you and global warming question. The challenge with global warming is when it's everyone's problem and when it's everyone's fault, it's no one's fault. What can like individuals do? Because it's such a giant problem and you can do little things at home and, and, and lifestyle things, but at the end of the day, it's the big industries, it's the big uh, manufacturing, the big energy that creates so much stuff. What can I do, or anyone who really wants to stop the problem, what can they do in terms of lifestyle, in terms of habits, maybe in terms of even activists? Look, I think that that's a great question, and I think it points out the need for us to act on this collectively. And I like to compare it to World War II. I mean, in World War II, people took a lot of individual act actions. You know, they grew their own food to try and help the war effort. They saved things. They invested in war bonds. All of them were helpful. But the United States government shut down the car manufacturing business in the United States of America, and we produced zero passenger cars between 1942 and 1945. The government said, no, our first priority is winning the war. Also, mm -hmm. our second, third, fourth, and fifth. So the government made decisions for everybody so that we all could win together that nobody could have made individually. The fact of the matter is for us to make good decisions as a society, we need policies that put in place rules so that every, when people make decisions, those decisions will be good for society. And so, you know, yes, people can act altruistically and that's nice, and I think people try to do it, and I applaud it. But the fact of the matter, as a society, we need to have rules in so that as a society we make big decisions correctly, weighing the information with everything included. And so that means for what an individual can really do, we need to support politicians and elected officials who do the right thing, and we need to tell the people who don't, get another job. If the government can make one policy, which one, what's, what's the first thing in your mind they should do? In terms of the environment and clean energy, what's the one thing that you would wish the government could do? I'm going to answer your question, but there are two things that everybody agrees on, on both sides of the aisle who acknowledges the facts. And that is, you should put a price on carbon and you should support research. 
And of those two, price on carbon is more important. Mm -hmm. So if, if it were one, all you say is, I mean, this is the classic thing I always say to people. Look, if I were running a garbage business and my garbage business was to take pick up everybody's garbage and dump it in your yard, I would have really low costs, <laughs> but you wouldn't like it very much. Yeah. That's the fossil fuel business. All you're saying is you have to pay for your costs. So if you put a price of pollution on the fossil fuel business, then let everybody figure it out. And you don't have to worry about it because now people are making decisions with full information. The other thing that I mentioned is the idea of you know doing a lot of government investing. Traditionally, government investing in research has been necessary because companies don't do blank research. Once the research is done, they're willing to do all the work on commercialization and development. But when you talk about R&D, you have to separate the R from the D. And so those, if the government did that, you know, then you let the 320 million smart Americans go build new industries, which is happening, by the way, and put a whole bunch of people to work, which is happening, by the way, <laughs> and you can get out of the way. That's how it's, the system's supposed to work. Tom, one thing I wanted to ask is, what sort of influences, both good and bad, have kind of shaped your worldview? So I think, like everybody else, probably my biggest influence are my parents. Mm -hmm. And my parents are not just from a different generation. They're from a pretty far away generation. They had my brothers and me when they were older. So my father was born in 1918. My mother was born in 1924. They're both dead. Mm -hmm. But that means they both went through the Depression as kids and teenagers, or in my father's case, even beyond that. Hmm. And they both went world, through World War II. So they had a very um, intimate interaction with hardship in a time when the whole society was under real threat and they saw a lot of pain. And then they were also intimately involved with being in the war, and, or in my mom's case, having her brother be in the war and see all of their friends be at risk and also to come through. Mm -hmm. So they had a deep-seated belief in what I would think of as America as a force for good, but also a really old-fashioned attitude about what was right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And they were extremely unsympathetic to people who did the wrong thing. And they, And I think that's a very... You know, that might be from a different time, but they were people who believed in the truth, period, and someone who wasn't telling the truth was a liar, and that's it. Hmm. And it, it's, that's just a fact, and they were from a, that was that era. And so for them, the idea of doing the right, you know, they didn't really respect money. They respected people who did a job well, and they respected what people did, not what they had. And they thought that people who talked about money or who thought that that made someone important or valuable, they deeply resented that. What was their opinion then of you going into investing? They were, they, they really, they were, I was the first person in my family who didn't have what they would think of as some form of calling, who wasn't doing something that they were doing because they deeply believed in it. I happen to be incredibly interested in investing mm -hmm. and it fit you know, the things that I had studied and the, the way that I think about what's fun to do. And so for me, it was really fun. But for my parents, 
they couldn't really understand why someone would be interested in that world. And for the, it was kind of an interesting mystery to them how hmm. their son could have ever done that. Did they ever catch on to it? No. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because, you know, they, my grandfather was a research scientist. Mm -hmm. And he, I don't think he never made more than $2,800 a year. And he had, you know, really advanced degrees and had studied, you know, forever. And so had a lot, and could have been a doctor and was a, did research in medical, mm -hmm. did medical research. And my grand, my mother told me that my grandmother was always saying to him, George, take some patience and please make some money for us. And he was like, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in like research and, you know, the next breakthrough and trying to, you know, learn new things and produce new ideas. And so when I think about those attitudes, that's a very different attitude from, a, you know, they were concerned about having enough money to be, to pay for health. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, my father was obsessed as, an, as a depression person of being able to take care of his family. But beyond that, that was an obsession. But beyond that, there was a much greater sense about there are rules about how you behave, period. And, for, and th those are strict rules. That is a great spot to end. Tom, again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Forbes interview. I'm Stephen Bertoni. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'll see you next week.